You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. A science story, huh? It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. We are your hosts, Aaron Barker and Liz Neely. And this week we're presenting stories about being cursed. Ooh, spooky. (laughs) No, I hate the spooky stuff, Erin. You know I can't handle it. And yet, I know that you have researched the spooky stuff for me. Well, I mean, that's that's what you do when you're scared, right? Learn everything you can. So I was digging up papers on the psychology of curses, and now I blame you for taking me down some very weird Google Scholar rabbit holes. (laughs) Oh, dear. Yeah, I come prepared to talk about the winner's curse, the loser's curse, the borrower's curse, the curse at equilibrium, the curse of too much knowledge, the curse of the dolphins. Oh, my God. So many curses. So little time. So many curses. That's not even getting at all of the sports curses, the curse of the bambino, et cetera. Right? Right? Four out of every five uh, professional athletes in one survey admitted to at least one superstitious behavior that they performed before a contest. Wow. And I was, right? I was thinking about this. I was like, it's it's a fine line between a routine and a superstition. And we know that the things that we do that affect our thoughts and emotions and attitude impact our performance. It's a lot like, um, it's like a a placebo effect, right? I used to think that was all just entirely in your head, but I found a paper, brace yourself, this one is actually (laughs) scary, where they had what they called a noxious stimuli, which meant creating a painful electrical stimulus, a shock to your tooth pulp, like Ah. to your front incisor, yeah. (laughs) And what they did was then they gave you laughing gas, right, which normally may make you feel more relaxed. You're at a dentist, calms you down, makes the pain go away a little bit. But they primed people to believe that the nitrous oxide actually made them more sensitive to their body. And in fact, it made them feel more pain. Wow. Yeah. So it's really easy to laugh at people and be like, oh, ha, ha, ha. It's all in your head. But, you know, there's actually some really valid biochemical stuff going on there. Like, I don't believe in curses, but everybody worries about something. And the expectation of pain makes the pain worse. So the idea that we can just exempt ourselves from like biology and social pressures and beliefs, I'd say that's more magical thinking than believing in curses. Yeah, totally. It's amazing the power that your beliefs can really have. And it is. It's it's easy to, to think of curses uh such as the curse of the bambino and all the many curses <laughs> that you've uncovered as being silly or or the people who believe in them as being silly. But at the same time, I have a certain soap that I always use on show days. <laughs> I have certain shirts that I like to wear. 
<laughs> I feel like everybody has that process or that routine that is comforting or pumps them up. Yeah. Well, I think we have a good story to ease us into this theme. Excellent. Our first story today is from Eric Vance. It was recorded in February 2019 at Beer Baron in Washington, D.C. The theme that night, appropriately, was curses. Uh, All right, so... um a couple of years ago, I was uh, working on this book about uh, how belief affects your body. And so I was learning about things like placebos and hypnosis and false memories. And I had this, this one chapter that was on nocebos. <clears throat> and if you guys don't know, uh, nocebos are basically like, okay, if placebo is when you expect something good to happen to your body, and it does, uh, a nocebo is when you expect something bad to happen to your body, and it does. And so the problem is, though, that we don't really know much about nocebos. They're kind of mysterious. So I was like trying to figure out how I could write about these things, and it, it got me thinking about things like superstition and uh, and mass hysteria. And I was living in Mexico at the time, and uh, I had this amazing idea. I was like, if I want to write about nocebos, I should just get myself cursed by a witch doctor, right? Like, that's a great idea. I mean, how hard can it be? <laughs> And so uh, off I went. And I, the first person I, I talked to was my uh, was my photographer, uh, the photographer I worked with. And I said, um, you know, hey, I want to get cursed by a witch. Do you want to come by and like shoot me getting cursed by a witch doctor? And he's like, hell no, I don't want anywhere near that. And I was like, why not? And this, I should say, this guy like this guy's literally been shot at. Like he's been in war zones. He he's taken photos of actual hired killers. And he was like, no, way way too dangerous. Like I don't want to go near you. And I was like. Like, I don't get it. And he's like, yeah, I don't want to get any of that bad juju to splash all over me. Like, that'll happen. And I was like, is, is like, curse, like, splashback a thing? Like, I didn't know that was a thing. And he's like, yeah, no, no, I'm not going to do it. Turned out he wasn't the only one. Um, the biggest objection came from my then-pregnant wife, who thought it was the dumbest idea she'd ever heard. <laughs> and let me know. Uh, and uh, what she's, you know, I, I was confused by this, because I was saying, like, well, you don't believe in magic, right? And she said, well... No, but there's just some things that we just don't know. And uh, I can see by some of the looks of your faces that you agree with her. <laughs> uh, but I did know. Like, I don't believe that there are forces that can make a piano fall on your head um, just because someone says some words. What I do believe is that your own fear... yeah. Uh, your own fear and, and expectation can affect your health. It can negatively like make these things real inside you. And that's what I wanted to happen. Maybe get a little sick, maybe cold. I don't know, something. And, uh, and so, uh, so off I go. You know, despite everyone's worries, I go off to get cursed. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, I bring with me my newly hired uh, assistant, who's going to be my translator, who I had just hired the day before. And I said, okay, so uh, you're hired. Uh, that's the good news. Um, and our first assignment is to go harness the evil powers of nature and, uh, and bring them on upon myself, because that's journalism, <laughs> I think. And she thought for a moment and said, yeah, okay, what the hell? Um, and so off we went. We went to a place called uh, Mercado Sonora, which is uh, a famous witch doctor market, which is it's like a lot of Mexican uh, markets. If you've ever been to one, there's like little, you know, stalls and people selling things, except what they're selling are things like sort of 
burned out doll heads and uh, live rabbits and coyote skins and like ceremonial swords. Basically everything that like your average witch doctor would need. And um, it's, this, it's this amazing place. We started talking to people and we learned two things about uh, curses. Um, the first one is that the curse industry is pretty much driven by romance. <laughs> yes, it's what you think. The people who ask for curses, A, put them on people who are dating the people they want to be with, or B, they put them on the people that they were recently with. And that seems to be what drives the curse industry, most of it. That's the first thing we learned. The second thing we learned is that the only way that a curse can be completed is if you tell someone that they are cursed. And that's an important point. So um, we started talking uh, to various, you know, people, and we figured out that there were two sort of dark lords of the um, of the market. Now you you'd think that like the curse scene would be kind of like underground, and like maybe there'd be like back rooms or some guy with like a jacket or something like that going like, no, no, no. Actually, like there's nothing illegal about putting a curse on people. Like it's it's totally fine. So people would just be out front like, yeah, I'll curse your cousin. What do you what do you need? Like uh, you know, it's very um, <laughs> really good at it. You want you want me to kill someone? I can I can do it with like a hex. No problem. Um, and which is really surprising. So we we taught there's two people. We go the two like dark lords. First guy is this like really happy sort of hippie guy. He was really sort of the the uh, like the new age like laid back uh, version of, of a dark lord. He had um, you know like a <laughs> like a uh, a Hawaiian shirt sort of buttoned down to here and like kind of a a, a, a a necklace of skulls that were really more cute than anything else um, and a big pot belly so uh, and he was like yeah are you gonna pay me and I was like yeah he says, yeah I'll curse you whatever um, so just to you know because I like to I like to you know comparison shop I, I went to uh, <laughs> the other one and, and she was literally one of the most frightening people I've ever seen <laughs> Like, first of all, she was dressed completely all in purple, uh, which apparently, like, wards off evil spirits. And she tended to talk in sort of these long diatribes of, uh, of like, sentences that where she didn't really take a breath. She would just sort of, sound would come out. And my, my sort of new translator would, you know, she, the first five minutes, I asked her a question, the first five minutes is just her speaking, and my translator, like, listening, 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 focusing. And then I finally said, what'd she say? And she said, um, okay. In order to make a Ouija board properly, you have to peel the face off of a convict and spread it over the board. <laughs> and that's about all she said. I was like, oh, this is great. Like, she's, she's in some very dark places. Like, this woman was in a very dark space. And this is exactly what I want. So we started learning all these interesting things from her. Uh, for instance, if you do want to kill someone with a hex, you have to get 12 other witches and put them in a circle um, and have them take off their shoes and put them in the, in the dirt in the forest. Uh, or you can use their photos if you want, if you don't have them. Um, and... And then, like, you can, like, channel the powers of ancient evil and focus them at whoever you want. Um, but you need to make sure you're wearing one of those, like, Mexican uh, wrestling masks while you're doing it. Because as she said, you know, it's just safer. <laughs> Protection. I didn't ask any more details than that. Um, and so by the time I get to the end of this conversation, I've got, like, these two choices, right? Like, I've got the happy, hippie, sort of... Uh, you know, laid back warlock and the crazy, scary, uh, assassin witch. And I realized in that moment that there's a limit to my sense of my, myself as sort of a, 
as a scientific person, you know, like a, a man of science. And I, I went with the happy hippie because it wasn't scary. Uh, and so we started the curse. Um, and, uh, um, the first couple of days, n- nothing really happened. I remember uh, I had like a like a coughing fit that like turned into uh, into like um, a sneeze, and then uh, immediately I was like, "The curse." <laughs> and my my toothbrush, my electric toothbrush stopped working, and I was like, "The curse," <laughs> right? But then like nothing else happened. And it ended up being I, I started getting a little bored, so I started trying to push it a little bit, you know? Like one night, like I got really drunk, walked home alone just to see what would happen. Uh I started riding my bike around and like cutting people off to you know, see what would happen. And then like nothing was happening and I was kinda let down. So I go to I go back to have the curse, you know, lifted and and the the guy's not there anymore. Or he's not he's there, but he's he's gone for the weekend. So I was like cursed for another weekend. So I was like, all right. Let's see if I can push this a little bit more. So on Saturday, uh, I go rock climbing and, and actually traditional lead climbing. So it's like a little bit dangerous, dangerous version of rock climbing. And I noticed that my partner would like stand back when I started climbing so that he didn't get the splash back on him when I like plummeted to the ground. <laughs> and he was like, no, it should be fine. But again, nothing happened. And so I was kind of disappointed until, uh, late that night, um, my wife, started having stomach pains uh, and they got more and more until uh, early the next morning. Um, they got so bad. The doctor said, you know, you need to go to the emergency room now. So we got in a, a car and we started driving to the hospital. And of course I'm, you know, my wife is worried about the baby and what's going on. And my only thought is it's the curse. And we get to the hospital and uh, they immediately like take us in the back, take us in the back room. Like it's, you know, we skip the line and everything. And, uh, they, they don't find a heartbeat. And I've, I've come to understand that the power of a curse is in the agency. It's in our desire to have control over the chaotic world that we live in to say that whether it's good or bad, that our actions dictate the things that happen to us and standing sort of facing the potential of a lost child you say my god what have i done what have i done that is the power of a curse finally they find the heartbeat and it turns out the whole thing was uh uh some bad tacos from the day before (laughs) and so we uh, we go upstairs and uh, just to do a sonogram, just to be sure. And that was the day that I actually learned that uh, my child would be a boy. And it was also that Sunday was my very first Father's Day. Uh, it was Father's Day that day, and I'm sitting there uh, and I'm I'm sort of la- laughing with the with the hospital techs and and uh, and we're making penis jokes. And I remember just thinking, thinking, you know, am I cursed today or was I blessed? And the only difference between those two things is the way that you see it, is, is the agency that you bring to it. And I walked away uh, from that, and um, uh, having learned my lesson, I, I went back in two days and definitely got that curse lifted. <laughs> and I, I walked away with two sort of lessons from it. The first was, the most more powerful than the things that happen to us 
are the way that we see the things that happen to us. The stories we tell ourselves are really more important than the things themselves. And, um, and that, in fact, we are not a collection of our experiences. We are a collection of the way we see our experiences. And the second thing is, um, if you're going to play with black magic, you know, wear a wrestling mask. <laughs> Just protection. Thank you. <laughs> That was Eric Vance. Eric Vance is an award-winning science journalist based in Baltimore. Before becoming a writer, he was, at turns, a biologist, a rock climbing guide, an environmental consultant, and an environmental educator. He graduated in 2006 from the UC Santa Cruz Science Writing Program and became a freelancer thereafter. His work focuses on the human elements of science, the people who do it, the people who benefit from it, and those who do not. He's written for The New York Times, Nature, Scientific American, Harper's, National Geographic, and many other local and national outlets. His first book, Suggestible You, is about how the mind and body continually twist and shape our realities. I know Eric is a friend of yours, right? He is. And as it turns out, I got to help Eric a little bit with that book while he was doing the research. Uh, yeah, he had visited me in Seattle while well, he was visiting Seattle to go to the uh, Harborview Regional Trauma Center. And I got to see how seriously he took the process of writing this book. Authors always go through some degree of pain and suffering. But let me tell you, when you see your friends strapped to a chair with a small needle underneath the skin of their fingertip electrocuting oh, no. them ah. uh-huh, <laughs> while, while they There's have more. a little... Things strapped to their foot, burning their foot, you start to appreciate their dedication. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I could make that level of sacrifice. <laughs> what did he learn from this experience? I hope he took something away. <laughs> was well, yeah, so this was all about how pain requires attention. So if you can distract someone... Uh, they potentially feel less pain. So he was playing a video game, I believe, throwing snowballs at uh, penguins or something like that while getting shocked and burned. <laughs> Whoa. So did it work or do I have to read the book to find out? I would definitely recommend the book. Um, <laughs> and also in the book, you will find out whether or not I am easily hypnotized. Oh, all right. <laughs> I'm definitely going to start that. <laughs> So our next story today is from Jess Phoenix. It was recorded in February 2019 at the Lyric Hyperion in Los Angeles. The theme that night was On Trial. I leaned hard into the fence, my hand flung out, my eyes straining into the darkness, trying to follow the path of the puka shell necklace as it floated down into the gaping abyss below. <laughs> My friends and colleagues at the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory had told me that if I wanted to take a rock off the island, I needed to make an offering to Pele, the volcano goddess, who made her home at the bottom of Kilauea Volcano. So there I was. It was September 2008, and my four months of conducting research on active volcanoes was coming to an end. I had mapped active lava flows. I had taken helicopters over volcanic vents. I had collected gas samples for analysis, installed a camera at the edge of a roiling lava lake. 
and I trekked down the side of Mauna Loa, the world's largest volcano. And I sampled flowing lava with a rock hammer. It is so hot up close that you can literally feel your eyes dehydrating. 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit will do that. <laughs> so like many visitors to the Hawaiian Islands, I wanted a souvenir. Now, I found the perfect one. It was a cantaloupe-sized piece of basalt rock, black and less than 200 years old. This basalt had crystals of olivine, which is a green mineral that in this case had weathered to iridescence. That's unusual, and that made it rock collection worthy. I displayed my would-be keepsake to my boss, Frank, at the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory. Now, Frank uh, raised his eyebrows and said, better make a good offering. Frank is part native Hawaiian, and he's a brilliant scientist. I am not native Hawaiian, uh, and at the time I was very much an aspiring scientist. I was also a broke grad student living on $30 a week. So offerings to Pele are often alcohol. Gin or rum are her favorites, uh, but also dances, prayers, chants, traditional food, or lays are also acceptable. I reasoned that a cheap, discarded puka shell necklace that some previous volunteer researcher had left in the house would be enough. As far as I know, there are no scientific records of Pele. However, in Hawaiian, she has another name. Ka vahine ai honua, the woman who devours the earth. Hmm. So, my... My land-based research had drawn to a close. I left the Big Island, went to Honolulu, where I was supposed to meet up with a research vessel. I was going to spend the next month at sea assisting Mark, a geochemist from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, with his research on the Loihi Seamount, the undersea volcano off the coast of the Big Island. Pretty much as soon as I stepped off the land and onto the ship, I ran smack into a steel cabinet uh, and gave myself a concussion. Hmm. Okay. So then we had a really expensive piece of equipment called an elevator that we dropped to the bottom of the ocean, and then we bring it back up uh, with samples on it. This is not your normal elevator. This is like a special science elevator. Um, <laughs> it literally exploded. All right? Like, that's bad. And then on the second to last day of the cruise, we actually had the ship's data expert have a heart attack. We were unable to resuscitate him. Everyone on board was part of the effort to clear the decks so that a medical helicopter could land, but it never came. That night, we were really subdued. Everybody was grappling with the fact that we were just 14 miles off the coast of Hawaii, and yet what seemed like a world away. I asked my boss, Mark, if it was normal for someone to die on a research vessel. He told me it was very rare. When we returned to Honolulu, I reorganized my luggage for the trip back to LA. I eyed the rock in my bag, but then I thought, eh, if Pele was really mad at me, she would have done more to me personally, <laughs> more than just a concussion. So I, I determined the cruise was just riddled with really bad, really sad luck. I arrived home after five months away to the marital equivalent of the Hindenburg disaster. 
it, our fights escalated exponentially as I struggled to readjust to um, life as a grad student and to my teaching duties at Cal State Los Angeles. Student health services diagnosed me with kidney stones, which I was unable to afford to have removed because no health insurance. Uh, I took the rock and I proudly put it in my office um, where one of the olivine crystals just winked at me. I convinced myself that it was a trick of the 70s fluorescent lighting. After a really horrific fight with my now ex, I went to stay with a friend of mine who was an undergrad from the geology department and her Cal State Los Angeles soccer teammates, the whole team. I was six to seven years older than all of them, so I immediately adopted the role of responsible adult. I became designated driver, and the first time I took them out, we went to Jack in the Box after we left the club. We were jumped in the drive-through lane as part of what I later found out was a gang initiation. My friends were fine, yay booze. I, however, had a concussion, a sprained wrist, missing clumps of hair, and a black eye. I started to look at the rock in my office, a little bit of side eye. Sometimes I found myself wondering exactly how long was the reach of the woman who devours the earth. But to get rid of those notions, I would wander out into the hallway and grab literally anyone I found to talk about anything vaguely scientific. I'm a scientist. So, January 9th, 2009, I had been moved in with the soccer girls and away from my ex for nine whole days. I did go to pick him up to go to our last-ditch effort at marital counseling, where the counselor pulled me aside and said, Sweetie, he has all the traits of a malignant narcissist. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then the same day, all of these things happened. I left my ATM card in a cash machine. I gave first aid to a bicyclist I watched get hit by a car. My car died as I raced to L.A. County Hospital to try to see my ex, who had apparently been hit by a car while on his motorcycle. My car died, like I said, and I managed to lock my car, house, and office keys inside of it while it was going away on the tow truck. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I did confirm the ex had been splattered across the 5 freeway and uh, had a broken collarbone and several areas of road rash down to the bone. Do not recommend motorcycle accidents, especially in L.A. Uh, then I ran into my future ex-in-laws. Think about that. Uh, they were visiting from out of state. Uh, they, I learned from them that literally everything my ex had ever told me had been a lie. And then I realized that I was going to have to move back in with him to take care of him because he had no family in state. I felt myself sliding back into the nightmare I thought I'd just escaped. I hugged my dog and my cat, and I cried. A few months later, after I finished taking care of the injured now ex, I moved back in with the soccer girls, finally. When I got there, they joked around that maybe I was cursed. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> A dim bulb brightened somewhere, uh, but my science brain rejected the idea. I did, however, put the rock in a very, very high shelf in my office where that olivine eye just couldn't see me anymore. But I still wasn't convinced. Mm -mm. But then, 
I was designated driver for the soccer girls again. I had two of them in my car, drunk passengers. I stopped at a stoplight. Something made me glance up at the rearview mirror. I see headlights barreling towards us with no sign of slowing down. I braced. We hit. My friends were fine. Yay, booze. Again, sensing a theme. Uh, I had severe whiplash and a completely, absolutely, utterly totaled car. A few days later, sitting in my office, staring at the rock for answers. Scientist or not, I had nothing. <laughs> the woman who devours the earth had just about digested me. I called Frank. I told him I was sending the rock back. He said, take care of it, send it back. To his credit, he did not say, I told you so. <laughs> Good man. So, I apologized to the rock for taking it from its home. I wished it well, and I visualized the cliff over the edge of Kilauea, where I hoped some HVO scientists would properly reunite it with Madame Pele. I tucked it in its little UPS box and sent it off across the ocean. A week later, and Frank confirmed that it had been hurled into Kilauea, and an appropriate offering of rum had been made. I laughed, <laughs> because I'm a scientist. Uh, I mean, how could this work, right? Six months of people around me being hurt, of violence, of accidents, of, of a totaled car, of imminent divorce. Yet, somehow, less than a week later, I found the exact truck I wanted to replace my car for half price. Hmm. Two weeks after that, <laughs> two weeks later, just two weeks later, I met Carlos the guy I've now been married to for nine years. And I still have the truck. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so since then, I've worked on six continents and with people who have vastly different customs than my own. Whenever I teach students, which is frequently, uh, about how to do scientific research, I always pass on Pele's most important lesson. Always, always, always respect local traditions, especially if they involve a goddess with a volcanic temper. <laughs> Thank you. That was Jess Phoenix. Jess is executive director and co-founder of environmental scientific research organization Blueprint Earth. She's a volcanologist, an extreme explorer, and a former candidate for United States Congress. She has been chased by narco-traffickers in Mexico, dodged armed thieves in remote Peru, raced horses across Mongolia, and so much more. She's a fellow in the Explorers Club and the Royal Geographical Society, a featured scientist on the Discovery and Science channels, an invited TEDx speaker, and she has also appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wired, and many other publications. She's the host of the podcast Catastrophe, and she has a book coming out in spring 2020 with Timber Press called Misadventure. My life as a geologist, explorer, and professional risk taker. <laughs> Sounds like she's like, got a lot of material for this book. Right? Like, my companion volume would be like, Miss Safety First. Don't touch <laughs> that. Put that back. <laughs> the Aaron Barker story. <laughs> the life of a professional TV watcher. <laughs> 
So the StoryCollider team is actually headed to Hawaii next week, where we're going to hold several shows and workshops. Uh, tickets are still on sale for one of our shows. You can check that out at StoryCollider.org. But as we prepare for this trip, something that's on our mind is the situation at Mauna Awakia, which is actually just around 35 miles away from Mauna Loa from Jess's story. And a couple of our producers, Emi Okikawa and Malia Pogarigan, have shared their insight on this with us. And Liz, I know that you're also kind of familiar with the situation as well. Yeah, it's definitely been on my mind. So what's been going on is that for the past decade or more, scientists have been planning um, and preparing for the construction of a massive telescope, the 30-meter telescope on Mauna Awakia. And this would be the world's largest visible light telescope and would give us unprecedented insight into the universe, which is amazing. Except, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. <laughs> except, uh, Mauna Wakea is a really important place. It is sacred. It's a sacred mountain, and it has a spiritual connection for Native Hawaiians between this planet and the heavens. Also, conservation district. It's ecologically sensitive, and so what we're seeing is increasing frustration, and now outright protest um, about this massive construction, which is, you know, supposed to be going forward here. Yeah, I think I've seen the protests have been actually going on as of this recording for 100 days. Right? That's right. 100 days. And, you know, we've, we've seen some celebrity faces in the mix. Oh, yeah, like uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, uh, who's Samoan and attended high school in Hawaii, I've heard, has joined the protests, and Jason Momoa from Game of Thrones. That's right. But many of you know the people who are there and on the ground um, are Native Hawaiians and their allies, just everyday people, um, putting themselves and their bodies on the line for what they believe in. And there have been dozens of arrests at this point, including many of Kupuna elders, And so uh, this is hard for us to see because people have been positioning it as if it's a simple conflict between, you know, quote unquote, modern science on one hand and Native Hawaiian culture on the other. Yeah, and we know science has always been a part of Native Hawaiian culture. I'm learning a lot about that from the storytellers that we're working with for these upcoming shows. Absolutely. And, and you know, Western science has a long history of colonialism to grapple with. Mm-hmm. So these are hard problems, but I think it's really <laughs> the one simple fact is it's unethical to build on sacred lands without the permission of indigenous peoples and to get anywhere in these kind of deep-seated arguments, we have to listen first. Yeah, I think you will all be unsurprised that at Story Collider, we're big fans of listening to each other. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of our thing. (laughs) So we want to thank all of you for listening today. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker. And me, Executive Director Liz Neely. With help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Miriam Zering-Hallam, Shane Hanlon, Audrey Kearns, and Joseph Scrimshaw. The podcast is edited by senior podcast editor Zoe Saunders with help from Gwen Hogan and Jun Chen. The theme music is by Ghost. 
Special thanks to Lyric Hyperion and Beer Baron Tavern for hosting these shows. And to all the science journalists out there braving volcanoes and electric shocks for the sake of their work. (laughs) Thank you for your service. Thanks for listening. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.